0: Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards, and today's guest is Jeffrey Madoff. He is the author of the new book Creative Careers: Making a Living with Your Ideas. And he knows a bit about being about creative careers. He is a former fashion designer, he's now a director, photographer, writer, and professor. And he joins me to discuss the ins and outs of having a creative career, including two key traits you must have to be successful: how to determine your value and how much to charge, overcoming fear and doubt being consistently creative, like how do you do it over time, knowing when to persist versus when to pivot, separating yourself from the service you provide, and much, much more. And so that the great episode, really enjoyed my conversation with Jeff, and I look forward to sharing it to you here. Now, if you missed some of the previous episodes, I do want to highlight them. Last episode, we had actually three guests. First time I've had three guests on at once, Gary Ware, Jeff and Stephen Bramble. And we had a seriously fun conversation, a business conversation about play. So play at work. And so we talk about compassion and accountability, vulnerability and authenticity, business culture, leadership, and bring it all together. It's a fun conversation. It gets kind of deep and philosophical. And we bring it all back around to how do we bring more joy to our lives? How do we bring more play to work? And what are the advantages of that? And then we have Sabina Nawaz. She talked about doing less better, which I think is a great concept. And before that was Karen Catlin. And we really talked about being better allies for inclusion. So very, very relevant topic always. All right, that's it. Let's play bigger, do better, move the world. Can't wait to get started. Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is, of course, Brock Edwards, and this is the show where we're looking for ideas, information, inspiration to help us get unstuck, help us get out of our own way and chart our own path forward. And so on today's episode, we have Jeff Madoff. And Jeff, actually, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself. Who are you and and what are you up to?
1: Hi, Brock, and thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm up to a few things. Uh, I am a I'm a father. I'm a husband. Uh, And I am a director. I have a production company in New York City. We do commercials, uh, documentaries, branded content. Uh, I'm a professor at Parsons School for Design, where I teach a course that I developed called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And that's also the name of my book, which is based on the class and has great stuff from the people in the class, meaning the guests that I bring in every week. And I'm a playwright uh, and producer for theater, uh, a play that I wrote about rock and roll Hall of Fame legend Lloyd Price goes into rehearsal in April of 21 and will be performing from the Mid-May to mid-June. I don't remember the exact dates. Uh, And that will be our first uh, commercial production. We're really excited and just hope that the world is in a healthier place and people are able to go to theater by then. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Well, let me ask you. So
0: you started, so you've got this book called Creative Careers, but it started from a class. Now, classes are hard work. What inspired you to put together a class around that
1: topic? You know, I was uh, asked to give a guest lecture at Parsons. And uh, when I gave that lecture, I found one of the things that was interesting is teaching is a great way to learn. And it also put me to the test because I had never previously really spoke about what I did and had to answer questions about it. So the students liked it. I got invited back, and then for the next four years, I would lecture twice a year at Parsons till the uh, professor who brought me in said, you know, there's an opening for a uh, professorship, adjunct professor, and I think you ought to do it. And I said, well, I don't know if I can with my schedule. I'm just not sure that I could commit. And they said, well, the school will work with you. Why don't you do it for just a third of a semester? And see what you think. Now, what I didn't know was they were actually trying out two other people for the position too. And I did the uh, third of a semester and was offered the position. And I said the same thing about my schedule and they said the same thing, we'll work with you. And now it's uh, 13, 14 years later, and I've been teaching this course. And I wanted to teach a course that would be a course that I would want to take. And what I wanted to do was hear from interesting people from a wide range of pursuits, talk about what they do, the obstacles they had to overcome, why are they doing what they're doing, and uh, really get a sense of the journey, the professional journey, and the private and personal journey that they went on because sometimes our professional journeys can interfere with our private journeys uh and i've been fortunate enough to be able to bring in fantastic guests who are very open uh from architects and designers to entertainers and musicians and writers journalists uh academy award winners Uh, Pulitzer Prize nominees, and just amazing people who were kind and generous enough to be willing to share their ideas with me and the class.
0: We talk about, okay, so creative careers. And it sounds like, I mean, you would be a guest in your own class. Like if you weren't teaching it, you'd be the kind of person you would invite. I mean, director, photographer, writer, professor. I see overlap in them, but they're also very distinct as well. And so I guess, where does, what's the
1: hub for you? Where does all that come together in your life? Uh, I'm seduced by ideas. So the hub for me is whatever kind of random neural firings I have that seduces me because I think that X is interesting. And so I want to do that. And, uh, you know, they are distinct on one hand, but also they are very much the same, Uh, My first real career was I was a clothing designer that happened totally by accident. Uh, I had no training in it. I did work in a retail store and uh, you know, a very funky boutique back when I was in college at the university of Wisconsin in Madison. And uh, you know, I learned certain things in retail and then As I learned these things, I learned by, you know, doing buying, by having to have budgets for open to buy. And so I had to learn the business aspect of it. And then I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine that I grew up with who graduated from college a year before me. And he said, Hey man, I've saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? And I said, well, I work in a clothing store. I see what we sell. I could always draw. I'll start a clothing company. And he said, okay, And he sent me a check. And in a week I had more money than I had ever had at one time. That was $1,500. And with that, I started a clothing company. I knew nothing about starting a clothing company. I knew nothing about manufacturing clothing. I was ignorant, but not stupid. And the differentiator there is, if you're ignorant, you can learn if you're stupid, that's forever. And so I learned by making mistakes. I learned from people who were generous enough to teach me. And I also learned from people, I should say, I learned which people to avoid. Uh, But what I learned in having a clothing company and designing a line of clothing, and the company grew very quickly, by the way, within I was doubling every three or four months. And uh, within a year and a half, I had 110 employees, two factories, an office in New York, eight national salespeople, so it, it grew very fast. Uh, and I sort of stayed in business in spite of myself because I was literally learning trial by fire. And uh, so it was an amazing experience. And when I transitioned to making film, I realized, wow, you know, it's very much the same. I had an idea. I had to communicate what that idea was to others. I had to figure out how much labor it took. uh, What were the materials necessary? When did I have to deliver it by? And could I deliver it at a price and get paid enough to keep me in business? And I think if you look at most businesses, what the myth is, is that they're so radically different what the reality is, is the protocols of doing business in just about any field are the same.
0: All right. So I, I've really got to ask here then, Jeff, because so you started a business, had a little bit of funding behind you, no experience in that field. And this is, I mean, design, that, that's a field that people study. They're passionate about. They, you know, invest their lives in. And yet very few companies grow as fast as that one did so what do you attribute that to what did you do differently or uh, whether intentionally or stumbled onto what enabled that
1: level of growth what happened i think was two things one we have to put it in the context of the times this was in the early 1970s and at that time uh there were kind of two choices out there in terms of fashion, you either dressed like your parents or you dress like you did when you were in high school. And I wanted to dress. Like I was at that age of being 20, 21. And so I was designing for my contemporaries. And as a result, because I thought this is what I'd want to wear. I assumed there would be other people that wanted to wear those same things too. And I was right. And it was the beginning of what became called the contemporary market. And that's where fashion started really happening in the United States at that time. And I happened to just be in the right place at the right time and be one of the initiators of that wave that grew a lot of businesses. So I
0: would fully accept right place, right time, except you apparently went on to do that in other businesses as well. Was that just, you happen to stumble into right place, right time, you know, as as a (laughs) director and photographer and all of that, or is there kind of a theme that as you look back, you can see kind of was applicable, you know, from one business to the next?
1: Well, the main thing was, uh, again, I keep thinking of the Dr. John song, you know, Dr. John, the night tripper must be the right place, must be the wrong time. Okay. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Sorry for that random firing, I have a lot of those. Uh, I think looking back, what it was, was that I didn't have any master plan at all. But when the idea of let's start a business happened on a phone call, it's not like we had a lot of back and forth in that initial phone call. I said, well, I'll start a clothing company. And my friend said, okay, and we're off and running. And in the same way, when I transitioned into doing film, uh, I just had this intuitive feeling for it. I taught myself how to shoot, how to light, how to edit. And uh, I'm good at figuring out things I'm interested in. And I am very bad at paying attention to anything I'm not interested in. And so, I'm able to figure out those things like filmmaking that I really like uh, because to me it's just this puzzle that I wanna solve about how to do it. And so much about creativity and the business is about problem solving. There's a problem, how do you solve it? Whether you're creating a new product that solves a problem or you know whether you are providing a service that solves a problem. And so I guess the unifying thread is I found it interesting. I saw a place where I could apply myself. And yeah, sometimes the timing was good. uh, But even in bad times, this doesn't happen to apply to me, but this might be interesting for your listeners is if you look at economic data, the failure and success rate of businesses after five years is the same with businesses that started during a difficult period like we have now and during good periods. Most businesses fail at both times and that percentage of those that are successful is about the same in good and bad times. So uh, I never let the timing, because it's not like I'm a great market timer, It just things happen to work out. And when I say happen to work out, I work really hard. Uh, and it's not like things just happen because there's the right convergence of time and idea. It's also working really hard to get it out there and get it out there in a good way.
0: Well, what is it that people um, misunderstand or have a persistent myth about when it comes to creative careers?
1: I think that most people think about creativity as something that has to do with the arts, be it writing, painting, dance, filmmaking, acting, something like that. And those are creative careers. But you can be a dentist and have a very creative career. You know, what if you're a dentist and you came up with some kind of painless, cost-efficient, and effective tooth whitening that's done in one, one visit? You know, and you had that idea, you were able to actualize that idea, bring it to life. That's creative. And you solved a problem, which is people like having white teeth and you solve the problem. Here's how you can get it quick and fast and without spending a lot of money. If you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a business, you're starting something from nothing, no matter what kind of business it is. So there again, you're creating something. So for me, I define creativity as the compelling need to affect change. And that takes in a much wider universe than the traditional definition of creativity. Yeah, I like that. I haven't heard that definition before. Um, Because I created it, Brock.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, very good. Um, Yeah, compelling need to affect change. So, all right. So when you've you've spoken with all these people who do have creative careers, you've invited them into your class, you've cataloged them uh, a little bit in, in your book. What, I guess, what can we best learn from them? I, I know everyone's different. Everyone has their own stories, but I, I do always look for kind of what are the themes or the threads that, um, that we can pull from it just even in general, high level?
1: So I would say, number one, if we're looking for a trait of someone uh, who has a creative career, and I would, again, expand this to all businesses, perseverance it's easy to start a business. It's harder to build it and a lot harder to sustain it. So the fact that I've had a small independent film company for 37 years, I'm very proud of that because there's not a lot of companies that have that kind of longevity, especially in a niche like that. So perseverance, that means I have succeeded in terms of survival through bad economic downturns like what we're going through now. Uh, But, you know, there was a recession in 2008. There was a recession uh, in the late 90s, early 90s. There was a recession in the 80s. 9-11 happened. I'm based in New York. Everything stopped. Every job that I had canceled. And I thought that the phone had been disconnected, but nobody was doing anything. So it's being able to persevere, I think is number one for any entrepreneur in any business, including creative careers. I think it's also really important to understand why you're doing what you're doing. You know, why did you start doing a podcast, Brock? Why did I start a film company? And why did I write a book? And I think if you have an answer to that, that can help motivate you as long as you don't lose sight of it, that can help motivate you and enable you to persevere during those really hard times, which are inevitable. Every business has them. And, you know, a lot of times people are really embarrassed to talk about that. Uh, And if you look at social media and if you talk to most entrepreneurs, it's this hockey stick growth and everything is great. And I can tell you unequivocally And that's not an easy word to say, by the way. Uh, I can tell you that everybody that I know has those days when they are shouting from the rooftops in triumph or sitting at their desk with their hand in their face thinking, how in the hell am I going to meet payroll? And we all go through that. And I think if we shared honest information with each other, we'd all be better off as opposed to trying to put an image out there through social media and the way you interact that makes it all seem easy and successful all the time. Cause it's not.
0: Yeah. I mean, there there certainly is that kind of Instagram fabulous where, (laughs) you know, you get your website up and the next day you're a multimillionaire and life's good forevermore. And that seems to be the very persistent myth that everyone puts out there. And yet like you, I've, I've never encountered anyone <laughs> who experienced that myth at all. Um, well, let me ask this, because so persistence and pivoting, you know, I, I'm always a little fascinated by this, that on, on one hand you have this, yes, you, you've got to you've got to get it out. And so much success has come from people just going a few more steps. And yet there's also this idea uh, of pivoting that at some point you're just running into a brick wall and by moving slightly, not persisting, changing direction, uh, that's where success is found. You know, so many businesses or entrepreneurs, they started down one path and ended up down another. And, you know, looking at your career, you've you've, you've made several pivots throughout your life. And, and so is there any, and I, I guess I've got a lot of questions wrapped up in this, Jeff, but, you know, how do you decide when to persist and how do you decide when to pivot?
1: Well, first of all, persistence and pivoting are not mutually exclusive because you pivot to survive (laughs) and survival, uh, is, is what causes you to want to persist. So pivoting is kind of a subcategory if you will, you know, I, I I wrestled in high school and, and part of college until I didn't want to do it anymore. Uh, but one of the lessons that I learned in wrestling was you have to think in series. So when you meet resistance, do you quickly move? And actually in wrestling, we called it pivot. You know, would you quickly move, pivot to another move where you're not meeting the same kind of resistance? And so you've got to determine, you know, do you want to exhaust yourself trying to do something you may not be able to accomplish? Or do you want to move quickly in another direction, which you may accomplish, but you need another plan in case that doesn't work. And, pivot is a kind of euphemism for things aren't going well. I got to do something else. You know, it sounds benign. Yeah. I pivoted. Well, he pivoted because, you know, things weren't going so well in one direction and you wanted to go in another direction. Uh, but that's part of survival, which is part of persistence. You know, and I think the, the other thing that you were asking is well, when do you pivot? When do you let go of that? initial idea and switch to something else, you know, what you don't want to be is delusional. I know this is going to work against all odds. I've got to make it work. And then you have a miserable time for the next several years trying to make it work until it's so financially painful, you give up. Uh, So I think ultimately the marketplace will tell you whether or not you're delusional or whether or not you have a chance to do it. And especially you can look at other businesses as somebody else in the same business that you're doing, but doing well. And if they are, the problem isn't the business space. It's how you're executing or not executing. So I wouldn't recommend opening up a blacksmith shop when nobody horseback rides. But I think that, you know, barring something that has gone somewhat extinct you know, you don't really service rotary phones anymore. But barring something that has gone out of fashion in the market, if there's a, if there are companies that exist that are doing what you do and prospering, then maybe you're doing it wrong. And you've got to reevaluate what you're doing and how you're trying to serve the market you're trying to reach.
0: Mm. Well, when you talk about the, the market and that, let, let, let me ask this, I'm going to turn just slightly here. You know, in some fields, and and I, you know, creativity is where you find it. In fact, your your definition of creativity indicates that it's not just any one particular field, but there are some fields where rates are very well set and established. And there are some fields where it's wide open, you know, and when I think of the the creative arts, I think, you know, that's so wide open, you know, some actors make fortunes, others wait tables, you know, they barely get by. Um, Right. So if you're going into, into a creative field, how do you, how do you know what, what price to set? <laughs> you know, how do you determine that value?
1: That's, a, that's a, a, a great question because I think that that's a challenge to most people in creative careers, especially when they're starting out. So I had a guest in my class, Zaria Foreman, a fantastic artist. And actually, the way that I got to her is I saw a profile of her on CBS Sunday morning. And wow, her work is amazing. And then when they said that her studio was in Brooklyn, I tracked down her studio and her and had her in as a guest in class. So her work is photorealistic. It's of like glaciers and lakes, and it's beautiful. Uh, Check her out. Go online and look her up. And uh, I asked her that very question. So when you're starting out, how do you know what to charge? And she said, you know, I I had no idea. And uh, I was asked how much one of my paintings was when somebody saw my painting. I wasn't really even an art show. They saw my painting. And so it was big enough to go over a couch. So I tried to look at, well, what do paintings that size sell for? Because I had no idea what to charge, she told me. So then she said, I decided $5,000. I said, how'd the person react? And she said, they bought it immediately. And I said, well, that that's great. I'm just curious, how much would that painting sell for now that you're an established artist? And she smiled and said, yeah, about 150,000. <laughs> so, you know, you don't really know. You have to go with what the market will bear. But then, you know, you get into with art, you get into the, or an actor, you get into issues of scarcity. And if there is enough demand for what you're doing and there's only so much supply, then you start pumping your price up uh, and you find out whether you get resistance or not. But chances are that, you're not going to get the resistance uh, because you've established a value in the marketplace. And then once you sell something for a higher price, you try to negotiate for even a higher price. So that's true with movie stars. That's true with artists. That's true with musicians and writers and everyone else. Writers go for a bigger advance. Once they have, have again, it's proof of concept, somebody's paid for it. And, uh, and enough people are interested that they're willing to pay for it again. So you really have to test the waters. You really have to educate yourself. And then you have to take that risk because you can also always lower a price. If she had said 5,000, the person said, well, I can do, I can do 3,500, but that's as high as I can go. And you could say, all right, I'll tell you what, (laughs) 4,000, because you need the money. She had to pay rent. And, you know, it becomes a negotiation too. Until you're so well-established, you don't have to negotiate. This is my price. This is what I get. And if you can't pay that, I'll sell it to somebody else. So it's, it's a moving target, especially when you're starting out establishing what your price and your value is. But then as you get more proof of concept in terms of what you do, you can raise those prices. Again, especially if you're dealing with, with scarcity as in a creative field, as opposed to creating a commodity that you want to sell by just making a lot more of the same thing.
0: Well, and along those lines, Jeff. So, you know, I, I, when I think of the, the creative fields, I think of services versus products, typically. And how, and I don't know if any of your your guests have encountered this or you've encountered this, but how do you decouple? yourself from your service. It seems like that's a place where people get tripped up, especially when they're trying to set the value is they get, you know, their own ego wrapped up in it and either oversell or probably more likely have a hard time selling because, you know, they're wrapped up in it versus this thing that they do.
1: I think that you need to establish or it's important to establish an emotional moat between yourself and what you do. So if you are a painter and somebody criticizes your work or doesn't think it's worth what you think it's worth, you have to realize they're not judging you. They don't know you. Uh, They may be gauged by their own checkbook. Uh, They may be gauged by their own budget they had set up. They may not even know anything uh, other than they're willing to spend X amount and know more than that. But that's not a personal criticism. Although a lot of creatives take that kind of rejection uh, personally, and you have to develop a thick enough skin to know that whether you can sell it or not at a certain price or whether your work is criticized out there, they don't know you. And that's why it's so important to cultivate healthy relationships in your life outside of business so that you have friends that support you. And when you're feeling vulnerable, which we all feel at times, and you're feeling emotionally at risk, which we all feel at times that you've got that support around you and you don't let yourself be identified solely by what you create.
0: Yeah. That's a tough, tough lesson. I I think that that's separating that, that out. Um, but especially, but it's,
1: tougher, it's tougher not to learn it Ooh. because if you are taking those gut punches all the time to heart, it's going to mess you up. That can lead to substance abuse, just trying to seek that constant approval that can lead to shattered relationships with others because ultimately you feel that your own self-worth is in jeopardy and you'll do anything to protect that self-worth. When if you realized that's not me, that's my work. And it's not that we don't have things invested in our work emotionally, but it's important to understand the distinction between the two, because although it's a tough question, not doing that is ultimately a lot more painful and destructive to a person.
0: What other lessons can we take from, or have been captured in your book from all the people you've spoken with. What are a couple of key things that are worth mentioning here today?
1: I think that, you know, again, when we talk about perseverance and I see that as the overall juggernaut, it's also, you have to have a proof of concept in whatever business you're in. And basically what that means is, are you the only one that thinks this is a great idea? And you have to put it out there and see if there's a market for what you're doing. You also have to see who else is doing what you're doing. Now, if you're a painter, there's lots of painters, but maybe you have a unique style in terms of what you do. And if you are unique, that also means you're going to have to do a greater search to find somebody who recognizes that uniqueness as appealing because people's tastes are often predetermined by what they've seen. And sometimes you have to educate a marketplace as to what you're doing. So I think that proof of concept is a essential part of business and understanding what the competitive landscape is and understanding the realities of bringing a unique product or service to market that some education is necessary in order to make it successful out there. So I think those are are things that are are really critical. Uh, I think it's also critical and every creative person I know shares these treat, these traits, curiosity, keep learning, go to concerts, read books, go to plays, go to museums, meet different kinds of people, be in situations where you are challenged and be in situations where you're meeting new people who are doing what you want to do so you can learn from them. So you're on a constant quest, that is propelled by a curiosity and a desire to learn and know more. And then when you take in all of these influences from reading, from plays, from books, from movies, from all these things, things start forming in your brain that you're not even aware of, but then you have that aha moment, oftentimes mistook for what I consider the myth of the lightning bolt which is you think that these ideas come to you all at once. They don't. Your brain doesn't work that way. Ideas come to you because there may be things that have been percolating and percolating and percolating. And then finally, those different dots connect and they form a constellation and an idea of things that you have been observing and taking in over oftentimes a long period of time. And you have that aha moment and it seems like it happened all of a sudden. But literally that is not how your brain works. It puts things together, recognizes patterns and associative patterns. So when you have that breakthrough, it's the result of a lot of those things that you've taken in before.
0: Well, now along those lines, how 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 can we be consistently creative? I mean, I know you, you can't be creative on like on the clock, but I mean you've had a career of creativity. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, kind of one idea that, that struck you and you, you wrote that you, you've, you've shifted, you moved into different fields. Um, any, I mean, I kind of hate the word secrets behind it, but any secrets behind that?
1: No, (laughs) you know, it's not a secret. You know, if you want to write, what is it you think you have to do? Get your ass in the chair and write and don't get up until you've done something now some people are great first thing in the morning some people early evening is fabulous for them some people for the hours from 1 a.m to 4 a.m are golden because they have no disturbances some people it's after they exercise and take a shower they've had time for all these things to percolate and that's when they're ready you have to find out how does your brain work and when is the best time for you to be creative, then you have to have the discipline to execute on that. So once you discover when you are most frequently and most likely to be in that zone, you protect that zone by having the discipline to do the work during that time. It can't be helter skelter. You need to have the discipline to exercise your creativity during the time of day where it feels most engaged. And you can find this out. You know, we all know that there are times that, you know, we are more focused than others. When is that? And experiment and discover when you feel the most creatively productive and then protect that time. And if you're working a full-time job, you got to find a time outside that nine to five realm But then protect that time and make sure whether you're writing, whether you're painting, whether you're dancing, whether you're sculpting, whatever it is, and have the discipline to then do it. It's no big secret, you know, because the only way you get better at something is doing it more. What haven't
0: I asked you about creative careers so far today that uh, you want to make sure we covered?
1: You know, there's a lot. In the book, Brock, that you know, we aren't going to cover it in in the time that we have, and but I'll tell you the purpose of the book. I mean, that the purpose of the book is to educate, entertain, inform, and inspire people. And I think that you know, when you look at a creative career, those are the kinds of things that I want checked off, you know, and I think that the most important thing is. Again, understanding what your motivation is for doing something. And I think there's another critical area that we we can talk about uh, if you like, which is most people don't ask themselves, what is success and what does that look like for me? And I know people that by all the traditional metrics, which is money, that they're extraordinarily successful. They're very wealthy. They have multiple homes and cars and can go and do whatever they want. And they're also miserable. So I know a lot of people who are very, in traditional terms, successful, but not happy. So I think it's really important to ask, what is success for me? And each individual has to ask that. And, you know, what does that look like? What makes you feel fulfilled and happy? And some of the people I know that have been very financially successful hit a certain point in their life, oftentimes in middle age or latter middle age where it's like, is that all there is? Because they held out what, in my opinion, is a false goal. It had nothing to do with fulfillment. It had everything to do with acquisition and they weren't happy. And I don't think that you can be successful without being happy, but I also don't believe that success is a destination. Success is just part of the process and you're successful. Sometimes you feel really good about what you did sometimes. And sometimes you feel terrible and sometimes you feel depressed and sometimes you feel unmotivated and sometimes you feel stuck, but you also have to realize that's a phase two. So I don't think success is any final assessment unless you're able to really time your death well and say, do you feel successful? Yeah, and you're done. But otherwise, you're going to have those, those periods that you feel successful and periods that you don't. But if you can look back overall and feel, I'm happy I've been on this journey, I think you're successful.
0: Well, I know this only applies to you, but how do you define success for yourself?
1: So there's two ways. Uh, On a personal level, success for me is uh, loving someone and being loved back. And that's with my family and close friends. And I think the true currency in life is the integrity of the relationships that you have and maintain. Uh, In business, success is the ability to say no without catastrophic financial consequences.
0: Say more to that. The ability to say no without catastrophic financial circumstances.
1: So let's say, uh, what's the technical term here? Asshole. Let's say that there's an asshole <laughs> that uh, you know you don't want to do business with and you are being offered a high ticket, to do that job, but you find the person or the circumstance or the message somehow so repellent to what your values are that you don't want to do it. You don't want to compromise your values or your integrity in order to do that. Uh, And you can afford not to do it and it doesn't put you out of business. So that to me is success where you can afford to say no to something that you feel would compromise your values or your integrity or force you to be in contact with someone that you just couldn't stand. And the only reason you'd be doing it is for the money. Well, if you're able to afford to say no to that, and by the way, sometimes you can't, sometimes you need to engage with people or in a project that you may not want to do. And I'm not talking about horrific things that are criminal or abusive. But uh, I think that if you are able to walk away from it and it doesn't place you in financial jeopardy, that's successful. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I I like that. You know, we, I, I think so often we get caught up in kind of the all or nothing, you know, like I have to work with everyone or I'm never going to work with you know, never going to compromise anything. And I, you know, so I like that you bring it back to the reality of sometimes you just gotta, but there is this level of success where you put yourself in a position where you can make those choices.
1: Um, Right. I mean, isn't that successful? I mean, you can afford to say, no, I don't want to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, as we start to wrap up, let me ask.
0: So you said, you know, you've had a a ton of people through your your class. I know you've pulled ideas uh, for for the book. Who are some of the people that, you know, have contributed through their ideas that the listeners would recognize and go, yeah, I want to find out more about what they had to say.
1: Damon John, who is a friend and a friend of the class. Uh, Damon is a great guy uh, and Damon's not afraid to speak truth. Kathy Ireland. uh, Kathy Ireland, who was a very successful model, I guess she would qualify as one of the first supermodels, who then uh, parlayed her talent into building a $2.5 billion global business. Uh, But at the core of her business is a human decency that is really wonderful uh so michael arndt uh michael arndt who uh won the academy award for little miss sunshine and uh screenwriting so he won the uh, academy award for best original uh screenplay and his take on storytelling and his rigor in terms of what he does was fantastic and then michael arad who designed the 9/11 memorial And what he talks about in the book is not just the creative process of creating that memorial, but also the emotional and political things that he had to go through in order to get it done, which are astounding. Uh, Susan Lacey, who has won, I think, 28 or 29 Emmy Awards and a number of Peabody Awards for the documentary films that she has produced and directed, And there are so many people that have come through that it's, you know, I've named a few names that you may have heard of, but there are people that you don't necessarily know uh, who aren't household names, who are very successful in their business and have tremendous insights to share. And uh, it's hard for me to single out you know a bunch of people because there are so many that have contributed so much to it. You know, uh, John Levy and Moran Cerf, who are behavioral scientists. Uh, John is a behavioral scientist and Moran is a cognitive neuroscientist. And we talked about how the brain works, how we make decisions. What are our biases that affect our decision making? And because I am a lifelong learner, because I have insatiable curiosity about so many things, to speak to such a diversity of people in such a diverse range of pursuits enriches me. And my hope is, of course, it enriches the students also, because again, we're all learning together. So it's uh, I'm really fortunate. And uh, that fortunate is coupled with I work really hard To bring good people into the class and then you find good people through other good people as witnessed by you and i meeting through a friend that we have in common michael roderick so you know you meet good people through other good people and that's also how you build a great network by making sure that you maintain those relationships and work with people and build a relationship that lasts over time. So you can support each other. And there's a reciprocity that's there.
0: Well, speaking of people working together and, and helping each other, you know, what, uh, one of the final questions I always ask guests is what would your ask be of the listener? You do a lot to help
1: others. How could they help you? Uh, everybody should buy my book. I have two kids. I'm trying to support a family. Uh, you know, I think that I, I, first of all, I think you can help when you call them listeners. It's interesting because I think that you can help anybody by just listening and being present and paying attention to what they have to say, because I think that our, our attention is such a precious commodity. And I think we oftentimes, me included, forget to do that. So Listening in and of itself is a very valuable thing to give. Uh, And of course, I want people to buy my book, but I think that the real advice that I'm that I'm giving you, and it's something I have to constantly remind myself of, is listen and be present. And I think that's the greatest gift that you can give anybody because then they feel acknowledged and they feel heard. And I just wish that there was more of that going on in the world than what's going on now. Well, where can people find you or find out more about you? Well, they can uh, go to LinkedIn and it's B. Jeffrey Madoff. And I started a group just last week uh, and it's called hashtag creative careers, no spaces. And so they can join the creative careers group and the idea of it, I hope you'll join it, Brock, is the idea of it is it, I'm hoping it is a hub for the exchange of good ideas and support for the exchange of good ideas. Uh, they can go to at a creative career, which is the Instagram site where there's short video clips because the limit on Instagram is 60 seconds and they're short, uh, quotes from the guests in my class i also post longer quotes in the creative careers group the website is a creativecareer.com where they're always going to be refreshed with new videos and longer clips so you get more of a sense of what um, my guests had to say on certain topics which i think your listeners would find interesting and finally, there's MadoffProductions.com, M-A-D-O-F-F, Productions with an S.com, And that's my production business, and they can get a sense of the kind of films that I make and the kind of things that I do. And finally, the uh, book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, is available at Amazon and all fine booksellers. And if you find it interesting, and if you buy it, and if you like it, please post a review and if you don't like it keep it to yourself it'll be our secret
0: uh, that sounds great well jeff it has been fantastic having you on the show today really appreciate your time and your thoughts to, uh, about creative careers This has been great
1: well i've had a great time and i i hope that it's good for your listeners and uh thank you very much for inviting me